Why would someone travel for a day to buy Parmigiano Reggiano from Enoteca Saleno? It's about the cheese, definitely, but it's ultimately about trust. On the occasion of the Melbourne Institution's 70th birthday, we spend a special double episode with Rosemary and John Portelli, the custodians of an import, wholesale and retail business founded by Rosemary's father, Gino DeSanto, in 1953. It's all about the little artisan producers, um, farmers, some are bigger, some are smaller, and that's what we like to bring to Australia and show to Australians. People trust us, they believe in us, they know that they're going to get a great product, and that is so reassuring. From the beginning, whether it was wine or espresso machines, balsamic vinegar or jarred artichokes, pasta or beautiful rice. Enoteca Saleno honours the artisans who make the products by carefully selecting, transporting and sharing tales of each item with their Australian customers. In this first episode, we hear from Rosemary about the origins of Enoteca Saleno, which started as an importer and wholesaler, moved to its first shop in Amess Street, Carlton North in 1982, and shifted to its current old pub emporium nearby in 2004. The soul of Enoteca Saleno has remained the same. A celebration of artisan food and drink. A tender and enthusiastic honouring of the farmers and makers. And a belief in legacy and family. This is Enoteca Saleno. Everything is here for a reason and everything has a story. I'm Rosemary Portelli um, and we're at um, Enoteca Sileno in North Carlton. For 70 years we've been importing and distributing um, beautiful Italian food and wine. We always look for the authentic um, and regional products so that it's um, not a whole lot of Chardonnays or, or um, you know grape varieties from other regions, from other countries, but try and get really Italian um, native varieties and um, so we've got the wines beautiful spirits especially some Sardinian ones which are spirits and liqueurs they're amazing um, and traditional the craft beers from um, Baladin and soft beer uh, soft drink which are they're all um, natural um, really lovely um, drinks and foods, all authentic, traditional, uh, regional foods from all parts of Italy um, that are made well, that are made with um, good criteria. That's not about, you know, the money at the end. It's all about the little artisan producers, um, farmers, some are bigger, some are smaller, um, who make really good regional products that have been made in their area, maybe by their family for even hundreds of years. And that's what we like to bring to Australia and show to Australians and um, get them to understand and love these beautiful products, which are really good to eat. <laughs> Rosemary's father, Gino, was a classic Italian post-war immigrant who came to Australia for a better life and, crucially, a path that was his own to forge. With his Australian wife, Maxine, as crucial support, he started bringing in Italian products for immigrants just like him. 
dad, Gino, um, his name was Luigi, but always known as Gino, um, came to Australia in 1952 um, and did you know, the cane cutting, the um, timber cutting. He was at Bongilla, did the that sort of thing for maybe a year. He wasn't, um, he didn't have assisted passage. He chose to come here with two friends, um, basically because um, uh, he and his, his grandfather, who was also Luigi, um, were both very strong personalities and... Um, his grandfather brought electricity to the whole area where he lived, where he was born, and basically expected that my dad, that his grandson, would follow on. And if you knew dad, he wasn't very good with electricity or anything like that. Um, and um, he said, no, I'll, I can do it on my own. He did study a couple of years of medicine um, sort of before the war, and um, he had few companies over in Italy in Milano but then he said no I can do it and he came to Australia the furthest place I think they could um, think of and um, one of the first things that he would do in Melbourne is he would when the the ships from Italy the cruise ships um, or the immigrants ships from Italy landed in Melbourne he would go to have uh, the Italian ships to have um, a good coffee a good espresso and, um, and then he thought, well, you know, maybe he can bring in some of these products. And he started that way in a very small way. Um, he met mum um, because one of the other two guys that he came to Australia with said, look, when you go to Melbourne, go to this particular boarding house because there's really nice, you know, um, woman there. And, you know, they met, fell in love and so forth. And they worked together to just try and bring good food, that what they needed at the time. And it started off with, um, uh, well, coffee machine, um, electric sewing machine, um, because the women, all migrant women, would sew clothes for the families. Um, and things like even, which sounds revolting, um, clams in jars. And um, it's sort of, you know, the more he could get, the more he would bring over. But he would go to Italy by, by ship, so it would take about four weeks to get there, four weeks to get back. So um, sometimes he would be away six, eight months of the year and mum was here eventually with three little children and trying to run the business here. So she was a pretty amazing woman behind the scenes, behind you know the face of Gina. She was great. She was Australian, learnt Italian eventually because she would hear dad and, and his mates when they were playing cards they'd say basta which means that's enough you know like you've I've lost you've won whatever and she'd think what are they saying you know, I thought they were swearing so and also to talk to her husband so she learned Italian and she was really very good and a great cook <laughs> A feature of Rosemary's childhood was Gino's absence on long buying trips to Italy and the excitement of his return with new products to introduce to the Australian market. I remember Dad would, when he would come back um, around Easter or after Easter by ship, he would bring the most beautiful dark chocolate Easter eggs. And in Italy they have gifts, so you can get order an Easter egg with a little gift inside um, and it can be a a special gift that you get, you know, for whoever you're giving the egg to. 
Um, the smell of chocolate for weeks after he returned was amazing in the house. Um, and also things like, so there was citrato, which is, um, it's like an effervescent drink. You add, add it to water and we would pack it um, as we did also the um, chamomile tea. So that was, um, I'd earn my pocket money during the holidays, packing, weighing and packing that and he would sell obviously that to all the little delis around Melbourne. Um, and just, I don't know, all the good food that we would have and Dad would always bring something back um, to taste or have something, you know, that would arrive by mail that we would taste, samples to, to taste and it was always exciting and then, you know, there were different wines that we were allowed to, when we were little, as long as we were having dinner, have, you know, a sip to taste. Um, so there's always something exciting. Um, maybe not everything was really tasty to my liking but it was really, it was also always good fun um, doing all that. And... When um, I was, I think, the first time when I was four and then when I was about five and a half or six, the first time Dad took me back to Italy on his own, you know, to, to meet the grandparents, and um, I understood why he had that funny accent, as, you know, and why we were different um, to, you know, the Aussies around the corner and that sort of thing. Um, and it was, I think that was fantastic to have um, had those experiences was really good. Maxine may not have been Italian, but she could turn her hand to beautiful handmade pasta. What was dinner time like for Rosemary when she was a child? If it was a birthday, mum would always say, what would you like for dinner? And I would always say, have um, pasta, cotolette, which is a schnitzel, um, and a nice salad and chocolate mousse. <laughs> she would make the best chocolate mousse. But um, anything, um, she would also make her own pasta. I remember doing, she would have um, lasagna, really f- paper thin lasagna sheets that she would make and it'd be drying all over the house. And then she would make the most amazing um, uh, well, it was a vegetarian lasagna, but it was just all fresh. Uh, veg, spring vegetables. It was just beautiful. No tomato sauce, but it was just amazing. I've tried and have failed <laughs> to make it. So she was, um, yeah, she was amazing. She learnt a lot um, just by experimenting, playing around um, with the food. And then when we went to Italy as a family, when I was about six, um, she obviously learnt a lot from um, Dad's mum and sister, and yeah, just eating yeah she loved cooking yeah dad I think was a bit difficult he had a lot on his plate he was trying to because they were both on their own they had no family here they were trying to um um you know make a home for their kids um and build up this business um and they had friends but no family so I think that was hard for them but then as they I guess as we grew up and as the business grew and they felt more um, settled, I guess, and more, um, yeah, settled, they, I suppose, were calmer. But Dad was Dad was always known as a very um, tough person, but, um, yeah, he was really lovely. And Mum was amazing. Given her parents had a business that consumed them, 
It's no surprise to hear that Rosemary was embedded in Enoteca Soleno from an early age. What did she do for pocket money? And how did her adult involvement in the business come about? Always at school holidays, I would um, go to Amos Street when we had the store in Amos Street <clears throat> and, um, yeah, pack the chitrat or the chamomile tea. I would help... Um, writing the invoices when back in the day when they were all done by hand had a, a reckoner um, do you know what they were that a reckoner where um, it's a little book and it says if it, if something is whatever it was 10 pounds whatever and there was a 12 percent or 12 and a half percent discount it should be this like that would help you work all that out and a calculator and everything I would help stack the shelves um, it wasn't so much a, I mean we did sell retail but it was more um, like an, a warehouse um, place there and um, then when I was about 30 dad was um, you know, getting a bit tired and he said, oh, you know, I might just close or sell the business. Um, you know, do you want to, do you want to take it over? Silly me said, yeah, I'll give it a try. <laughs> I was a primary teacher at that point. Um, but yeah, it was, so I sort of um, left teaching and just went full time into this and it was um, a huge learning curve, even though I had been working a lot and you know obviously at home we would and even with our kids you know when they were at home we'd always talk about what was happening so it was around me all the time but um when you're sort of stepping up to um really take control and run the whole business there's a lot to learn um and then eventually I met John and we married and Dad said, well, rather than have our forces split, you know, if John wanted to come into the business. And um, he did. And there we go. That was it. <laughs> it was Rosemary who made the decision to embrace the legacy of Enoteca Soleno and devote herself to the family business. But it became much easier a few years later when her husband, John Portelli, joined amplifying and expanding Rosemary's own suite of skills and energy. He picks up the tale. I'm John Portelli. So my history with the business starts, with Enoteca Silena starts in 1987 officially. That's when I moved into the business. Um, prior to that, I had been working at a cheese shop in Carlton, the Ligon Food Store. And I was uh, behind the counter there for over 15 years full time and several years after that, part-time. So in 87, um, a few years after Rosemary and I had, um, a year after effectively we got married, um, my father-in-law said, look, uh, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. I'd had an enormous amount of experience in the retail sector. He said, I just want to know what my plans would be for the future if you would think you'd want to come into the business. Um, and uh, and so effectively it took off from there. So I had, uh, I think, a, a fortunate and incredible amount of retail experience of 70 hours behind a counter six days a week in all and um, and I brought that into the business and I knew not one iota about importing and wholesaling apart from the fact I'm buying from other wholesalers um, and learned an incredible amount from a man who had uh, amazing talents um, and abilities as as an importer being self-taught and um, but very entrepreneurial 
extraordinarily entrepreneurial. He was, in some instances, decade ahead of his, decades ahead of his time, and I was able to learn a lot of that um, in our travels throughout Italy. We'd be driving thousands of kilometres, and when you're in a car for thousands of kilometres, there are a lot of conversations that you have, and as you're going through regions, and this inspires something else, and something leads onto something else. So, yeah, so I came in from that aspect, and... Um, and I had uh, a pretty steep learning curve. John Portelli was scooped up by the world of food at an early age, and he never broke away. He tells the story of his teen years selling cheese and the sad circumstances that led to him committing himself full-time. Call it destiny, call it tragedy, um, in a sense. So I was working um, in the cheese shop in Carlton on a part-time basis, school holidays, Saturday mornings, and it was, um, and whenever I was called, I was, I was still at school, I was still doing my, my matric. Um, unfortunately, my mum was diagnosed um, with a brain tumour and I was still a teenager, and um, she'd actually had it for quite a long while, but in the early 1970s, they didn't know much about brain tumours. Um, so um, she had operation, but she passed away a little while afterwards. And when you're pretty young and you're doing matric, you're doing form six, it was pretty hard slog. Um, and so uh, and so I thought I, I just couldn't finish the year. And so I knocked on the door in the cheese shop and I said, do you have a full-time job? And they really didn't, but they just probably took me on, um, you know, it was a, it was a help, but then they knew that I could really work really hard, um, and I did. You know, sometimes I'd be there really early in the mornings. You know, uh, and I'd take eight tons of pasta barilla upstairs in the days when barilla was just launched. You know, I'd cure five ton of Parmigiano cheese. It's 150, 160 wheels of oiling, rotating wheels of cheese that were in those. They were about the 35 kilos. That's 75 pounds in the Imperial or more. So I did, let's say I did over 15 years of an apprenticeship, still waiting for my certificate of accomplishment. Um, so, and look, it's interesting that I had a home-cooked meal every day of my school life. So I lived effectively over the fence from the Coburg High School um, and there was a lane separating and on my way through the back gate I'd go past the chicken coop and there were fruit and vegetables, Dad grew everything um, and we had a wood-fired stove and we cooked on the wood-fired stove for eight months of the year. I'd chop wood, I'd go, you know, go into the back lanes and the old houses they were demolishing, I'd bring these long 18 feet planks and bearers and joisters on my shoulders full of nails and cut them up, saw them up, chopped them up, and we had it for heat, we had it for cooking, we had it for baking, um, we did everything on the wood-fired stove. And so having a home-cooked meal, I'd have, when, when a lot of my school friends had Vegemite sandwiches, I was having minestrone, I was having spezzatina, I would be eating hot, warm eggs and poaching them on a pan on top of the wood-fired stove in olive oil with stale bread that I'd hold over the fire, over the flame and toast it. So that's the sort, I was really fortunate that I was exposed to food and we were self-subsistent. So we made an incredible amount of produce at home. You know, the pickling of um, olives, the curing of sardines and anchovies, you made our passata. Dad made the best homemade wine 
slash vinegar that you know any homemade uh, person would make because they didn't have the technology and you know when you when you're getting grapes coming over from South Australia and takes a week before you're crushing them obviously it's going to oxidize but you know it was great and um, and so having exposure to that and I then was fortunate I was exposed to an incredible amount of people you know the cheese shop highly cultural I'm talking about you know all the doctors from all the hospitals around Carlton the the uh, the university professors and teachers the poor students who would come in barefoot in the 70s when they couldn't afford you know and, and, and old singlets and they were just renting in a room in Carlton which was really dirt cheap and now you've got to go you know 10 kilometers away from Carlton to get a dirt cheap room so having and all the migrants who worked in the hospitals as well and the surrounding um, um, businesses and factories around Collingwood and they would go on their way home and they would buy cut meats and cheeses and so forth and so you're giving them the lunches for the family for the next day but what I think was was quite um, extraordinary is that I was exposed to not Italy I was exposed to regional Italy. I could speak, can, I understand 98% of the dialects. I can speak um, a lot of those dialects. If I'm in a region, I can speak words from those dialects very, very comfortably because from a young young person, I was exposed to them. And so when I'm talking to a Venetian lady, I know the Venetian lady's habits, cultures, um, flavours, tastes, products that she likes, um, the way that she presents herself, her conversation, um, her cuisine, which is going to be completely different to a Sicilian and, and or a Calabrese cuisine you know, cuisine um, as a regional identity. So having that exposure meant that for me, it sort of gave me a pathway of being able to infiltrate certain foods and understanding their origins, their seasons, their uses, the people. Why was such a product devised, developed, happened? And was it because people who were near the coast were, had always been exposed to invasions and then they probably had to move further inland to be able to live. But moving inland and when you're coming from the coast and you've had a fish diet, you then have to consider how do I keep my fish and so the salting of the fish happened that lasted for six months or the drying of the codfish and so you, you, you're sort of exposed to that but um, yeah I've had a, an amazingly rich rich um, upbringing and uh, development in my lifetime in these exposures. The Enotech Seleno philosophy has always been to seek out the best products of the highest integrity. But how does the hunt work in practice? I, I, I would, what I would normally do is, now we're talking way before Google Maps, and um, so I would have three large maps. They're about, you know, five, six hundred millimetres high and about four hundred millimetres, and they're about three or four, one for central Italy, one for the islands, one for northern Italy, and I'd have to determine which ones I'd take with me to. And so you, you, you're on the bonnet of your car, and you've got to decide, okay, I've got to go here, here. And so... Um, you have a landline and from the hotel you phone your supplier they know you're coming because you've, you've sent them a fax or even a telex <laughs> so you sent them a fax saying I'm, I'm going to be on my way and I'm going to be there on this date um, and you say to them so I want to know uh, once I hit the autostrada 
which direction? And they'll tell me the direction. I says, what's the ushita? What's the kazella? Which is the exit? And at the exit, you've got the toll. And so at the, I said, at the exit, then the the highways, the freeways are the green. Then you go into the blue, which are the stradi statali signs. So I hit the blue signs and I say, so what's the direction? And they go, you go down such and such to, to here. You go down about five kilometers. Okay, at five, so I'm writing arrow, five kilometers right. I said, and from there, then you find this road. Okay. So they said, look, we'll come and pick you up at the Casello. It's about a 20 minute drive. I said, no, 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 no. I said, I want to make my own way as close as I can because I want to understand you know, the, the, the terrain and that sort of thing. And, um, and very often, uh, most often, I would actually find them and they would never have to leave. But sometimes I say, no, no, we better pick you up. But the funny thing would be, and I'll get to the stories about some of those experiences. I'm getting to those. But, but some of them, would um, would say, you know, it's a three-kilometre drive off the freeway and then uh, at, at three kilometres you turn to the right. And I said, and there's, and, and so it, it's signed? And it goes, yeah. Okay, so if it's three kilometres, because in Australia, three kilometres is 3,000 metres, not 3,001. If it's 3,000 metres, I don't see the road. Do I turn back? He goes, no, 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 no. And I said, so how far is it? He goes, oh, it could be five or six. I go, that's the Italian way. So you have to understand this psyche. And so it's all of this, you know, this wonderful, you know, these exchanges and, you know, and because, I, as I said, I set the foundations by saying that I'm fortunate that I was exposed to so many Italians, uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Italians during my, call it apprenticeship, which means that that gave me the grounding and the, you know, the, the, the footwork of being able to understand how to approach them. So if we would go to, for instance, we might have gone and visited um, Martelli at the time, and Martelli is a family in Lee, in um, near Pisa in a village called Lari which is a village and it's a castle so the Pisani from Pisa used to always fight the Florentines from Florence who always used to fight the Sienese and they had the strategic hills and Lari is on this from the Pisa and it's incredible views that you have of this little castle all of a sudden and there's two families two brothers and their whole families ten of them lived in one dwelling so they had one room they wept whacked a wall in between, created two bathrooms. Um, and they've been producing pasta since 1926. So here we are, we come into this, um, we come into this one-way, one-way castle road. And as we come in round, Mr Martelli knows we're coming about 10. He's with his yellow apron, one of the brothers, and he waves and we go around and come around the corner. And he's got these pallets next to the wall of the castle, the wall of the castle about 20 metres high. And the pallet is there so nobody else would park the car there because you know, we come from Australia. So we had to have the only car spot in front of there. And so we're going in, you're expecting, you've, and I've visited other pasta plants before. And here we are, and I walk in, and um, and I can see the, the family, the various generations, and they've got the yellow, yellow dust coats on, and one person's weighing. One person's got the stapler. One person's putting it into a box. Another person put the crosses on the boxes for the shape that are in their individual square and moves them onto a pallet. And so it's entirely hands-on. And they have a little radio playing in the background. They're having these conversations. The odd local villager passes by and says, Buongiorno Dino. And so you're getting this, this incredible, wonderful feeling of family. But the Martelli family have a table. And it's almost like um, an extendable monk's table, a frattino, with a monk's technique would sit you pretty close. And depending on how many people passed by and stopped by, would depend on how long they extended this table. And you ate in their large kitchen where everything is cooked there, and 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 you and they stop 
And they stop at about the one o'clock, the one thirty every day. The whole family congregate. Uh, some of the other children or grandchildren, or whatever, they all come in and sit in this long table. And you have, you have, and they'll invite other people. And so there's always a pastor as a first. And then there could be Rabbit and Cornelia. But it's inevitable that while you're there, you're going to be talking about the pastor and they'll say oh you know we just we just did a small batch of 20 kilos and we just uh, um, and this one here we only age this for one day or the two day when there's normally a dried pasta we just wanted to see how it's going to be as a fresh pasta or you know how the whole deal the cooking type so it's almost they're always experimenting and they've got you there in this amazing conversation in the, so you're eating with the family there are, there are various stories like this that, that give you a very, very close connection to incredible people, human beings, suppliers, generational, uh, artisans. Rosemary and John own Enoteca Saleno, but the heart of the store is a collaboration with loyal customers. How do these relationships work and why are they so enduring? Customers, all our customers, because they want the best. They want an experience. They want something special. We'll have clients with only and they'll say to me, um, can you prepare three dozen, four dozen, five dozen bottles of wine? I want them five, 10, 15, 20 years old. I want them to drink now. I don't want to buy, I don't want to buy green bananas at the, uh, at the fruit shop because I don't know if I'm going to be here tomorrow. I want to know I can go down, I can open up a bottle, bring it out. I know that it's going to be at its best as it's 5, 10, 15, 20 years. We bring in refrigerated container, we store in a climate controlled warehouse. Because we've got so much insulation thermally, we don't need to have air conditioners running all the time and the wines don't get natural light and they're at their best. But I will only ship refrigerated. Nine out of ten of every con- every container that we do, whether it's food, wine, salt, even pasta, vinegar, I do refrigerated. At certain times of the year I don't have to, but you know, between otherwise, you know, canned tomatoes and salt and, um, and vinegar don't always have to be. But I will not compromise on product crossing the equator in a normal tin box at 60, 70 degrees. You go into a tin shed at home where your tools are and you stand in there in a hot summer's day for one hour. Imagine when it's in the middle of the equator for two and three weeks. It's going to destroy the organoleptic qualities of everything and people have no respect so people trust us they believe in us they know that they're going to get a great product um and that is uh and that is so reassuring we have extraordinary relationships with our clients um they're absolutely fantastic uh they're people who um understand and appreciate and know the difference i often have had uh, young children coming in that might have been running around and you know you might be concerned because there's glass bottles and and uh, and I would say to the young ones um, you know to the parents look can I give them a packet of pasta they were so well behaved I'll give them to the I'll get down to the young ones level I'll say you've been such a good person and you deserve to have this pasta because there are a lot of bottles and you could they could break and fall but I want you to have this pasta and it's a very special pasta it takes a long time to make I, I try and be brief and I and I tell them that you know it, it, the time that it takes and, and it's, it's good in high in proteins and you don't notice and you can eat a good plate full anyway the young ones take it home and they tell their mum and dad where they can cook the pasta or the young ones have been over to friend's place and the mother says, oh, can, can little Johnny stay over? And, um, and, uh, and the little kid, I've got to do a plate of pasta. And the little kid goes, what brand are you going to cook? You know, that sort of thing. So our customers, irrespective of if they've had the opportunity of travelling or not, the greatest satisfaction that I have is that when someone has tried one of our artisan pastas or our risotto rice or they've tried the extra virgin olive oil or the Tajaski olives, 
I still cure Parmigiano today, and we are selling today Parmigiano Reggiano five years and five months old to eat. Our grana is 44 months old, which is generally more to cook. We cure it with olive oil at the warehouse, we rotate it. Our clients will travel 30, 40, 50, 60 kilometers for our Parmigiano and say to us, why can't I find Parmigiano like yours anywhere else? Because I don't leave it in cardboard boxes. The cardboard boxes that ferment, that it could be stacked one on top of another in a cool room. Ours is alive, they're, they're breathing. We Oil. I select the producer. I select the time of the year. I select the size of the Parmigiano. I select the Gigantina, the quality of the Parmigiano being the tester. And until, if it goes to all those parameters, that's what I would take. And our customers don't ask us how much. They ask us how good. Because I have told them, I do not go to visit our suppliers, prospective or old, and ask them how much, or say to them, you can't increase the price. No, I don't say, what's the best price you can give me for a a pasta? No, I say, how much do you have to be paid for your pasta? And because we respect the producer, we respect the product, we respect the consumer, I've always greatly believed, and I've, I've been doing this full-time for over 50 years full-time, and it's not been the 38 hours a week. It's when you're involved in business, and it's, it's longer hours. And when customers come to you and they say, I realise a difference, and when the restaurateurs realise there's a better yield, and I say to the, to the restaurateurs, Don't, do not underestimate your customer. If I tell you that more than a million portions of rusticella pasta are cooked in Australia every year, more than one million portions, the question you as a chef have to ask yourself, can I risk to serve something that's going to be compromised to this person if this person can eat a better pasta at home? Can I risk... And this is what you have to ask because if customers are coming and they've got to pay the babysitter and the Uber and they might, you want to, might to leave them a, a tip and they can't go out all that often because the mortgages are high or they have to be very, very selective, you really have to give people an experience. And I think one of the great things is that we have people coming to us because they want a true, genuine, gastronomic, humble as it might be, experience, because they can tell the difference. And they will come here and they will say, look, I've gone and I've bought all these balsamic vinegars or I've been given it from, they come from X chain, whatever. And it's, and if I've got to say the word, it's crap. It's, it, it killed my wine. I bought $40 a bottle of wine. It ruined my palate for the whole meal. It destroyed my dish. And we have these incredible satisfactions, these incredible, um, I think, uh, good feels that you need. Um, and they, and, and our clients, I have to say, our clients are our, our fuel. They give us our, they give us energy. They give us the voglia, the want. They, they give us the desire to find something else, which is not easy to find. When we go and look, look for suppliers, new suppliers, someone might say, look, you know, have you ever thought on such and such a product? The first people I would ask, I will ask suppliers, who do you recommend? But I say, remember, you've got to recommend someone who is worthy because if they're not any good, then you're going to be, you know, on the wrong side of the fence. This is the first episode in a special two-part podcast that celebrates the legacy and enduring importance of Melbourne's Enoteca Seleno on the occasion of its 70th anniversary. 
Look out for the second episode, which continues the tale of this rigorously curated representation of Italy in Australia. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We wanna hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.